0: Watching officials from international soccer this week on the news, it was hard not to think, wow, you guys have really learned how to have a game phase. You know what I'm talking about? 14 people indicted, many arrested, allegations of bribery and corruption. Going back years, the head of FIFA, Sepp Blatter, was not indicted, but people were wondering about his involvement. And law enforcement officials have made clear their investigation is not finished. But Blatter was cool, he was composed at the opening ceremony of the FIFA Congress on Thursday.
1: Many people hold me ultimately responsible for the actions and reputation of the global football community. We, or I, cannot monitor everyone all of the time. If people want to do wrong, they will also
0: try to hide it. By the next day, though, Cracks started to appear, if you were watching closely, which I was. It was little things. For example, on Thursday, Blatter had said, These are unprecedented and difficult times for FIFA. One day later, though, he told the Congress, I will not call this unprecedented, Apparently, somebody reminded him of accusations of bribery and financial mismanagement under his leadership in 2002, 2006, 2010, and 2011. That day, Friday, Blatter addressed the FIFA Congress in French, and even the question of his responsibility as FIFA's president seemed to shift, like soft ground yielding under a heavy weight. Je veux bien accepter que
1: C'est le de la FIFA I'm willing to accept that tout. the
0: president of FIFA is responsible for
1: everything, but I
2: would you, like to share that responsibility with, with you, or at the very with least with the executive committee here to my left. C'est
1: votre
0: Sometimes during this address, Blatter's words seemed totally disconnected from his tone. He issued a rallying cry at one point, let's try to lift our spirits, with the grimness of a doctor delivering awful medical news, and an actual grimace at the end. Which is to say, even somebody with as much game face as a veteran political operator like Bladder, who's been part of FIFA's leadership for decades, even he has his limits. One of our producers, Jonathan, has this picture in his middle school yearbook, his team picture for sixth grade basketball at Hillview Middle School in Whittier, California. Out of 20 kids, most of them are stony-faced, a few smile or smirk a little bit. He is the only one beaming He says he didn't get the memo to look tough. It reminded me we have to be taught to have a game face. We have to be taught. It doesn't just happen. Somebody was telling me last week about his daughter's softball league that they actively coach them on this, on not to cry, not to get upset when there's a bad call or the game doesn't go their way. Don't look like you're losing it, the coach tells the kids. Keep your face neutral. Look like you're in control. That's the key. Look like you're in control. Well, today on our program, we have stories of people in situations that are fraught and difficult, where anybody would have trouble staying composed. But above all, for various reasons in each story, these people have to stay composed. They have to maintain game face, which is when you know you are truly being tested. For WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Stay with us. One, 200 dog night. For a couple summers when she was 19 and 20, Blair Braverman worked as a dog sled guide on an Alaskan glacier. The glacier was part of an ice field the size of Rhode Island, made of many glaciers. Blair and 12 other staff members lived with 200 huskies on the ice for a week at a time. Sometimes, actually, it was a lot more than a week. They'd be there for three or four weeks. The guide slept in tents. The dogs slept in little plastic igloos. And eight times a day, helicopters would drop off groups of 20 to 30 cruise ship tourists. Of course, like any job dealing with the public, especially a job dealing with tourists, this all required a pretty committed game face. Not just stoic, but actively cheerful and enthusiastic and F-U-N fun. You know, on a glacier. Till one day, that game face became very, very hard to pull off. Quick note, we've changed some of the names in this story. Here's Blair.
3: The tour was expensive. Tourists paid $500 each for a half-hour helicopter flight and a dog sled ride on the glacier. Total time on the ice, one hour. A lot of my earnings came from tips. Twenties, fifties, or the occasional hundred folded tight and slipped into my jacket cuff as I shook hands at the end of the tour. My job was to provide a luxury experience, a taste of real Alaska. This is from a promo video for the tour.
1: The sled dogs we have at camp are the real McCoy. These are the dogs that we travel with in the winter and race with. Most of these dogs that will be pulling you today have actually done the Iditarod, many of them, several times.
3: We We were supposed to provide this taste of Alaska with absolutely no discomfort, either physical or mental, even though physical and mental discomfort is kind of the premise of living on a glacier. It could be brutal. UV rays reflected off the ice and blistered the insides of our nostrils so that it hurt to breathe. It rained a lot and my skin got so waterlogged that it fell off in white strips. I wrapped my fingers in duct tape to keep the skin in one piece when I shook hands with tourists. The snow we stood on was just a few feet deep, covering solid ice. But the ice would shift and crack and so under any given patch of snow, there might be ice or there might be nothing. A gaping hole hundreds of feet deep. During my job interview, I'd been told that no staff members had died yet but they couldn't make any promises. Once in a while, we'd spend a day probing for cracks in the ice, crevasses. We pushed long, thin aluminum poles into the snow every 12 inches or so through the whole camp, praying that the metal would meet resistance. One morning, I climbed from my tent to find that a turquoise lake a half mile wide had appeared overnight right next to camp. It was gone by the next day. On a bad day, we called the glacier the goddamn ice cube. On a good day, summer camp on the moon. To the tourists, we called it Dog World, as in, Welcome to Dog World! I'm Blair and I'll be your dog sled guide. I can't believe how lucky we got with this weather. Eight times a day, I told the tourists that they had lucked into the best weather in weeks. Even when it was pouring rain, I explained that until they arrived, it had been raining harder. We tried to spare them the sight of a single piece of dog poop. We cleaned the kennel constantly, scraping up dog hair that collected on the snow and piling it in an enormous mound hidden behind the tents, which we called the Wooly Mammoth. The tourists didn't mention crevasses, so I didn't either. It wasn't that the reality of glacier life was a secret. We just didn't want to distract from the tourist fantasy that they had been dropped into a pristine wonderland. By my second summer on the ice, I was having a hard time. Most of the other guides were men and older than me, so I was pretty lonely. To make it worse, I'd made the mistake of dating one of the men the summer before and then breaking up, which didn't exactly make it easy to live together at glacier camp. My ex had taken to badmouthing me to the other staff and even to the tourists. It's too bad you didn't get an experienced guide, I once overheard him tell a couple as he led them to my sled. My tentmate, Rebecca, was my closest friend on the ice, although I thought of her more like a kid sister. She was a homeschooled 18-year-old from Indiana who had never before been away from her family for more than a week. She'd fallen in love with the idea of dog sledding, the idea of Alaska, and back home she saved up money working at McDonald's to buy a Malamute and a Husky, which she trained to pull her on rollerblades. Rebecca lived her life in her words, guided by Jesus Christ and his teachings. Together, she and I made easy targets. Other guides blamed us for problems around camp, and we were always the butt of their jokes. I was pretty resigned to it all, but sweet Rebecca was determined to make friends, going out of her way to be helpful, working twice as hard as any of the rest of us. And she dreamed of getting a chance to drive a dog sled. She'd set aside time for it, and somehow, just when she was getting hopeful, someone would yell that they needed her to scoop poop or fetch some booties, and the trip would be delayed again. At night, Rebecca and I would sit up in our sleeping bags, eating trail mix and trading young adult novels about the end of the world. We'd been on the glacier for two months, more than half the summer, and Rebecca still hadn't driven a dog sled. And she was really, really homesick. Finally, she gave in and bought a plane ticket to see her family. When the morning came for her to leave, I begged for an hour off so I could take her sledding before she left. It was the best ride I'd had all summer. The dogs were happy, it wasn't raining, And Rebecca laughed out loud as she drove the sled. Tourist voices drifted from the neighboring trails, where other people were responsible for them. Then we heard the high whine of a snowmobile and saw a tiny figure in the distance, our manager, Malcolm, zooming toward us in an orange vest. We had been warned about orange vests. They were worn only to signal an emergency, to communicate urgency to the staff without scaring the tourists. Now, as he barreled up the trail, Malcolm waved to the tourists. Gorgeous day, isn't it? He slowed next to me and Rebecca. We're in trouble, he said. The pilots can't get back. A sudden storm had descended between the heliport and the glacier. Nobody's hurt. But the tourists are trapped here now, Malcolm said. His voice was higher than I'd ever heard it. They're trapped here. I need you to let the staff know what happened without alarming any of the tourists. Just tell them, I don't know, that they'll be here longer than they expected. Maybe an extra hour or two. More for their money, right? He paused. And girls, try to make it sound like a good thing. Rebecca and I split up to spread the word. Great news, I announced to each group. You get a longer tour than usual. Then, while the tourists pet the dogs... I sidled up to each musher and quietly told him what was actually going on. Back at camp, Malcolm was standing by the satellite phone thinking. He had called the cruise ship to say that the passengers would be late. The captain agreed to wait three hours, but no longer. So our cook heated a massive pot on the propane stove, preparing cocoa. Our goal now was to keep things fun for as long as possible. Let the tourists hang out in the kennel, then bring them in for hot drinks. Malcolm had plans for snowmobile rides and a snowman building contest. As long as the backup helicopters arrived within an hour or so, which they would, there was no reason for the tourists to know that things weren't going just as intended. But the weather only got worse. We brought the tourists to the community tent and fed them cookies. Malcolm delivered the solemn news. The helicopters were grounded. The storm had blocked their flight path. An immediate rescue was doubtful. No, a man said, that can't be. My ship leaves at eight. Others nodded in agreement. The snow, the ice, being trapped. It wasn't a possibility. Then the tourists got angry. At the guides for bringing them there. At the pilots for misjudging the weather. At the cruise ships for not waiting. Didn't we understand that this was a serious inconvenience? One woman had left her infant with a babysitter. A couple was worried about standing up a dinner date. A few people raised concerns about medication they had left back on the ship. We have a cook, Malcolm said to the tourists. We have plenty of food and water, and we're going to make this as fun for you as we can. Right now, the mushers will go back out to their dogs, and anyone who wants can go on as many dog sled rides as they'd like. The tourists looked dismayed. Malcolm gave them a pleasant nod and stepped outside, gesturing for the staff to follow. I don't care what you need to do, he whispered, once we had gathered around him. Just keep them happy. Do whatever it takes. Act like this is the best thing that's ever happened to you. And for heaven's sake, don't do anything that could get us sued. That afternoon passed in a haze of card games, the tourists constantly checking their watches and their useless cell phones. Someone set up a badminton net in the snow, and a few of the younger tourists played a tournament. Then dusk fell, and it became clear that the tourists would be staying the night. Malcolm and the cook delivered the news alongside platters of meatloaf, mashed potatoes, and chocolate cake. Meanwhile, we guides squatted on our heels behind the storage tent and ate sandwiches, too grim to talk. The tourists were not happy. Here they were, dressed in their cruise ship clothes, wearing these weird black overshoes they'd been given to wear on the ice, far away from their toothbrushes, and their pajamas, and their beds, and the breakfast buffets they had already paid for. They didn't understand why they hadn't been rescued. They didn't understand why the helicopters couldn't fly at night. The storage tent held 30 emergency sleeping bags for just such a situation although in ten years of tours, they'd never been opened. Malcolm told the staff that we would be seating our tents and cots to the guests, as he insisted we call them. He went tent by tent to make sure the quarters were ready. Put all your stuff in trash bags, he told us, and we'll pile it outside. We want to make sure the guests are comfortable. Where are we going to sleep? Rebecca asked. Malcolm stepped out into the snow. I really don't care, he said. Rebecca and I ended up sleeping on the floor of the veterinary tent. It reeked of piss and menthol. Neither of us could sleep. I whispered, how are you doing? My flight, she said, voice muffled by her pillow, and it took me a moment to follow. I had forgotten. It leaves the day after tomorrow, she said. I can't get a refund. I tried to think of something to say, some comfort that would make her feel better. But I was just so tired. The second day passed like the first, although the Parcheesi players had graduated to poker. Every so often, I'd peek into the storage tent to get medical updates. One of the other tourists was an insulin-dependent diabetic. If he were stuck on the ice for just one more day, there was a chance he could slip into a coma. The word was that, back in civilization, a mountain rescue team was mobilizing, ready to cross the frozen wilderness with ropes and ice picks carrying insulin and other medications in their packs. But nobody should know any of that, I was reminded. We had to give the impression that even though we were trapped, everything was going to be just fine. The tourists were busy pining for their ships, for the vacations that had been only temporarily interrupted, and I was to keep it that way. So I returned to the tourists beaming. When my face got sore from all the smiling, I retreated from the crowd, back to the diabetic man in one of the sleeping tents. He was middle-aged. I think he was a banker. He sat on a cot breathing slowly. At one point I drew a picture of him, a little sketch that he folded and tucked into his breast pocket. Then he took my hand. I'm honored to be spending this time with such a lovely young woman, he said. I squeezed his hand and felt like a liar. Late in the afternoon, We gathered the tourists in the community tent, planning to break the news about a possible second night. The tourists had been remarkably positive all day. They were troopers. Some of the younger tourists even helped feed the dogs, hauling buckets of soupy kibble from plastic igloo to plastic igloo. A few even sounded like they wanted to stay. I can't believe you get paid for this, they said, sipping their cocoa. If they could take three months off, they said they'd love to come work here. This, Malcolm noted, was a resounding success. Still, I dreaded the possibility that they would stay for a second night. I thought that would be the breaking point. Not just for the diabetic man, but for us, too. How long could we keep this up? Not long after, we heard a thin rumble in the distance. Everyone froze. At first, I thought it was in my own head. No one had told us the helicopters were coming, but as they rounded a mountain on the other side of the ice field, the tourists began to cheer. They rushed towards them, stumbling in the snow as the birds landed. In the sudden excitement, I stepped back and watched from the kennel, sitting on a plastic igloo as the guides helped the diabetic man into the first helicopter and the rest of the tourists into the others. Rebecca was able to slip onto the last helicopter, waving at me as she climbed aboard. We watched the helicopters disappear behind the mountains. In the silence that followed, even the dogs were quiet. We'd learn later that the hole in the storm that the helicopters flew through closed up just as fast as it opened. And the last helicopter, the one Rebecca was on, had to make an emergency landing at a lodge near the base of the glacier. The rest of us trudged back to the tents without speaking to each other. There were sleeping bags to pack up, dogs to feed and trails to groom, and poop to shovel. In the morning, the helicopters would return, carrying a new group of tourists to experience real Alaska. Though we'd never match the tour we had just given. The tourists who got stuck, they'd paid $500, like all the rest, to experience real Alaska. And they were the only ones who really got what they came for.
0: Laura Braverman. A version of this story is in a book that she's writing that's called tentatively Welcome to the Goddamn Ice Cube. Next week, The Atavist will publish a longer version of the story. That's at theatavist.com. By the way, we spoke to the dog sled company in this story. They say that they would never do anything to hide information from the tourists. Though a former employee of the company did confirm account.
4: Somewhere I heard that Life is a test I've been through the worst But I still get my best God made my mold from the rest Then he broke that more, So I know I'm blessed Stand up now And face
0: that the Funny face Okay, most jobs Require you to suck it up And keep your game face on Right? Keep game face on Even while things are going horribly That's true for anybody in sales. It's true for waiters and waitresses. It's true for every kind of performer. And among performers, I think it might be most intense for stand-up comedians because they're on stage alone. And when comedy goes badly, you know, it gets very, very bleak. It gets very lonely. And they have to stay up there doing their job for a group of people that is not into them at all. And they have to just keep going. They have to keep telling punchlines that just are getting nothing back, just crickets one after another after another. Not long ago, Tig Notaro had some shows like that.
5: I performed in, uh, in Vegas. When, when you perform in Vegas, you do a week of shows. There's two shows a night, early, late show. You do 14 shows, basically. And I bombed <laughs> all 14 shows. <laughs> and in between the shows, I didn't know what to do because I'm not a huge drinker, don't really gamble. And uh, so the first <laughs> night... I decided to go back to my hotel room that was so far away from the venue that I only had enough time to just stand still like this for two minutes and then walk back to the venue. So after that first night, I decided that I would spend the evening, in between the early and late show, I'd sit in the back corner of the venue, just have a glass of water while they're Cleaning the tabletops and vacuuming, getting ready for the late show. I did that every night for the rest of the week. And the last night of the week, my phone rang, and it was my agent calling to tell me that the venue had called him to say that they thought it was weird <laughs> that I was just sitting in the back corner and could I please go find something else to do? Do you know how humiliating that was? So humiliating. Because you know that call didn't come from some faraway headquarters somewhere. It came from someone in that venue looking through some little window, just like, yeah, tell her to get out of here. Sick of looking at her face. So, again, I didn't know where to go or what to do, so I took the escalator down to the first floor, and there was an ice cream parlor. Or, I don't know, are they called ice cream parlors? You know, take me to the ice cream parlor! I mean, I'm I'm eight years from 50. I don't just sit and have ice cream by myself, just like... And let me be sure to not use my microphone, which is the exact (laughs) shape of an ice cream cone. (laughs) So I have my ice cream, and I finish my ice cream. I go back up the escalator to the venue, and uh, I do my final show of the week, and I bomb. I get off stage, I shake hands with the audience members. They're just looking at me like, we hate you. I'm <laughs> just like, feeling is mutual. I shook hands with the other comedians on the show and they were just like, we cannot stand you. And I was like, okay, top hat comedian, you're right. I'm horrible. (laughs) Then I went, got paid in the office, and I went back to my hotel room. I put on my pajamas, little pants that had little pigs flying all over them. (laughs) I looked adorable. (laughs) It was my one small victory of the week. Then I went in to brush my tooth. (laughs) And that is when I caught my reflection in the mirror and saw that I had a full blown chocolate mustache on my (laughs) face. No! My brain completely replaying everything that evening. I'm on stage bombing for one hour with a full-blown chocolate mustache on my face. And then I'm very face-to-face, intimately shaking hands with the audience members. Nobody was like, oh, you have, no. Just, just hating me shaking hands with the other comedians. Then I go get paid by the guy that I am certain was who made the original phone call, telling me to get out of there and find something else to do. Guess who found something else to do? Yeah, me. I went and had a little bit of ice cream for myself. What was he thinking when I was sitting there in that office with him? full-grown woman with a full-blown chocolate mustache on my face. You know, could I not just glance in the mirror before I get on stage? What is my checklist before a show? Belly full of ice cream. Check. Head on stage. What did he, did he think I had put on a fake mustache to sneak back into the venue he had kicked me out of? Just hopped on stage. Not so funny anymore, is it, Vegas? Just like, we never thought you were.
0: Pig Nataro. That story is part of the material she's working up for her first HBO comedy special that's called Tig Notaro, Boyish Girl Interrupted. It airs in August on Saturday, August 22nd, 10 Eastern, exclusively on HBO. Her tour schedule is at tignation.com. Coming up, people who never, ever can actually have a game face, like their bodies prevent that from happening biologically. That's in a minute from Chicago Bubbleg Radio when our program continues. This is American Life from Ira Glass. Each week in our program, of course, we choose a theme, bring you different kinds of stories on that theme. Today's show, Game Face.
4: My entire adult life, I've never used the expression Game Face. So I have no idea what it means or what you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm.
0: That's legendary Indiana basketball coach Bobby Knight back in a 1992 press conference. And after he says that he doesn't know what a game face is supposed to be, he makes a series of fake, intense faces, scowls and grimaces,
2: ridiculing the whole idea of a game face. The biggest regret of my life is not asking a question that Bobby Knight ever got mad at in a press conference.
0: That's Mike Pesca, one of the hosts of the sports podcast Hang Up and Listen, also the host of the daily podcast The Gist with Mike Pesca. He's the person who told me about the apparently very famous Bobby Knight quote about game
2: face. He meant it to say it's a ridiculous notion that real athletes don't have. And what I because
0: because his attitude was just like we're out there doing our jobs. We're 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 intense people
2: doing a job. We're not putting on a mask. That's right. And as I think about it, Bobby Knight was like that all the time. And so a lot of these guys, not everyone, but a lot of these guys, they don't have game face. That's what they live. If you're an intense, competitive person, that's how you live.
0: Fact is, though, not all athletes feel the way that Bobby Knight did about this. Some of them consciously cultivate their game faces, Pesca says. They talk about wanting to intimidate.
2: So Dennis Eckersley, great relief pitcher. Um, he had a long, flowing, black mustache. And he would talk about his own self-image as Black Bart as a bad cowboy who came to town and he was going to mow down the opposition. Randy Johnson, who is an extremely tall major league pitcher, would lean out over the mound and he had a scowl on his face. And I also think there's a classic predator and prey situation. You know, in nature, predators have their eyes closer to their nose. Prey has their eyes on either side. And I think when Randy Johnson is scowling at you, you know, you feel fear. Other
0: players with great game faces that Mike pointed to Bob Gibson from the Cardinals, Roger Clemens, John Starks, and Charles Oakley of the Knicks, Dan Marino with the Miami Dolphins, Mike Singletary of the Chicago Bears. But when it comes to the player with the greatest game face in sports, the game faciest game face, we went on a search, and we believe that it is none of those guys. We nominate a hockey player, an old school guy. So
2: in this week's show, we're going to make the case uh, for Terry Sawchuk. Good case. Sad case. Why sad? Terry Sawchuck played, he was one of the best goalies in NHL history. And he played in an era, a benighted era, where it was all about toughness. And we can't believe this, but goalies didn't wear masks. The game wasn't any different. The puck wasn't any softer. Just goalies didn't wear masks. So there were no protective masks. And Sawchuck was this relentless guy who won
0: four Stanley Cups and was injured so many times that at some point Life magazine did this photo of his face where a makeup artist and a doctor basically just recreated all the scars and all the places that he had been stitched up. And when you see it, he looks like Frankenstein. It's hard to see it and not think Frankenstein. And his face took so many of these injuries because it's something that Sawchuck is famous for inventing, a way of being a goalie that actually took his unmasked face and put it directly into the line of fire. Before Terry came along in 1950 in the
1: NHL, goalies tended to stand and bend a little
0: wee bit at the knee. It's David Dupuy, who wrote a biography of Terry Sawchuck. He says that stance meant the goalie's head was higher than the top of the goal. But Sawchuck bent over. He bent over at the middle. If you've watched a professional hockey game in the last, like, half century, pretty much any goalie you see is imitating Sawchuck.
1: His back is almost flat. I mean... It's almost like parallel to the ice. Almost parallel to the ice. uh, His wife, Pat, used to tell him that she thought she could put a cup of coffee on his back and it wouldn't get spilled. And uh, his face would be low, creating a great sense of gravity, helped him to move laterally, but it put his face directly, almost the first thing in line with with the puck. It was a a great show of uh, courage, but it tended to help his getting 600 facial stitches. Yeah, how often was he hit by the puck?
0: How often was well, his hit?
1: 600 facial stitches, I I would guess probably uh, maybe 20 times a season. Sometimes um, excessive enough that, I uh, remember the Red Wing doctor, Dr. John Finley telling me that one time Terry had been hit in the nose so severely that the front cartilage uh, was tore almost hanging by a thread
0: that is, half his nose, almost came off his face.
1: And he stitched it back on, and I remember him saying that you or I in our profession, or any profession, would be sidelined for for weeks. Uh, He sutured Terry up, and Terry went right back out
0: and played the rest of the game.
1: All set to go now, Stemkowski with Pappen. Here's a not
0: unusual day at work for Sawchuck, a playoff game from 1967 against the Chicago Blackhawks.
1: To Bobby Hull, there's the shot, oh, and Sawchuck was hit,
4: and knocked flat. Terry Sawchuck took that tremendous blast off the stick of Bobby Hull, boom. Down goes Sawchuck, what a tremendous shot from short range. The way he went down, Dalek. While well, we watch him get up now, get a good look at Terry Sawchuck. He's got bruises all over his body from other shots taken in this series. Watching him in the dressing room the other night, one shoulder was yellow and blue and orange uh, every color in the rainbow, it appeared. And it was that same left shoulder.
0: Off the ice, Sachuk's life was pretty tragic. Dupree talked to people close to him and he says that Sachuk was an alcoholic for his whole career mentally abusive to his kids and wife, a vicious drunk who would rant and rave and throw things. He died at 40 from medical complications that he got after a fight with a teammate. The fight was over nothing, some bills, Dupuis says. Well, that's what it started as, anyway. He began at the bar and continued at their rented house.
1: They're swinging at each other, and Terry falls on a, a part of a barbecue. And then he realizes he's, he's badly hurt. He's
0: got an injury to the, his abdomen. It just seems so it just seems so I don't know, so so senseless yeah, yeah, it's senseless. You know, the whole idea of a game face implies that that somebody's like putting it on, like they're putting on you know like an, you know, like they're acting, uh, but with him, do you feel like he was ever acting on the ice? No, no, never.
1: What you saw is what you got. He was intense. there's no doubt about it. he was intense and and it's funny, sometimes before a game. Uh, he would look to a teammate and said, Hey, boys, um, I only need two tonight. And they would end up winning the game
0: 2-1. Right. In other words, you just need to score two two points and we'll win. Yep,
1: two goals. Just get me two goals and we're going to win this thing. In
0: 1962, Solchak decided to start wearing a goalie's mask. Barely any goalies were doing it back then. But it was so tough, to DeBruy says, everybody else felt like it was now okay for them to start as well. And they did. Since then, hockey always don't put their faces in direct danger the same way Sawchuck did. So none of them can come close to the game faciest game face in the sport. At four, Frankly Miss Scarlet. So a few weeks ago at our story meeting, everybody here at the radio show, we were sitting around talking about this week's episode and what Game Face is all about. And one of the people who works here, Elna Baker, raised the whole idea of blushing, how blushing is the opposite of Game Face. The world sees exactly what you're thinking and what you're feeling, especially for people who blush a lot. In fact, there's a whole kind of blushing that's known as chronic or pathological blushing. And there are medical papers about this. There are online forums. People who blush many times each day, basically They have an overactive nervous system. Their blushing mechanism is on a hair trigger. So when I was sitting there talking about all this, and finally Elna said, she has it. And a bunch of us are like, wait, you have it? At which point, Elna, she doesn't say anything. She unwraps this black scarf that she'd been wearing. And her neck and, you know, the skin right below her neck, they were just covered with red blotches. Now, I've known Elna for like five or six years. And until this moment, it never occurred to me that Like a person who's been bitten by a vampire in a bad movie, Elna is always wearing a scarf or a turtleneck. And Elna told all of us she'd been thinking about getting surgery. Yes, there's surgery, which can make you stop blushing. And she'd been talking about it with friends, and she'd even made an appointment to consult with a doctor about it. At which point another producer on staff, Sean Cole, said he'd researched the surgery for a story that he never ended up doing years ago, and he remembered that it had these possible serious side effects And he wondered, was Elna really seriously considering this? And he said if she was, he could help her research whether this was a good idea or not and decide if she should do it. And so with that in mind, Sean has this report.
6: So the first thing you need to understand about Elna's blushing is that it's not really what you think of when you think of blushing. She doesn't go red in the face all of a sudden when something embarrassing happens. Instead, the redness comes on slowly slowly starting on her chest and working its way up her neck to her face and ears. It can catch her by surprise sometimes.
7: Like it, w- it just happened yesterday in the shower. In the looked, shower? Yeah, I was showering and I looked down I'm like, why am I broken into hives? Or not hives. I have to stop calling it that.
6: <laughs> but they're hive-like.
7: Hive-like red splotches. You, you can really see it because the splotches almost look like countries all over me as they grow. You're like
6: a map of the world. Yes. But but does it seem like it's like a social? You're checking your chest to see if it's <laughs> happening now. That's
7: the one. That's the one that I said was the like when that one starts.
6: Oh, that's the canary in the coal mine one. Yeah, that's the trigger one. Mm-hmm. Wow, it always starts with one particular part of your chest. Yep. And it's just because you're talking about it. Mm-hmm. This has caused a real problem in terms of Elma's job. She only works on our show for part of the week. A lot of her life involves being on stage. She's made appearances at the storytelling show, The Moth. She's gone on tours with The Moth. She auditions for commercials and other acting gigs and sometimes gets those parts.
7: So I'm heading into my show.
6: I asked her to record herself as she went around during the day to see how much she blushes. And here, she's just arriving at a storytelling event.
7: And in anticipation on the subway, I already broke into Hive, so I'm arriving. With hives on my chest already. (laughs) Because I'm nervous that I'm going to break into hives when I perform, because I will.
6: Now, there's a name for the thought process Elna just described, and it's a word I love. erythrophobia. It literally means fear of the color red, but it can also mean fear of blushing. That is, you worry you're going to blush, and then the worry makes you blush, and then you're embarrassed that you're blushing, and so you blush harder, and so on.
7: I wish that you didn't have to know how I was feeling. Like you didn't have to see it. I have a tell, I have a huge tell all over me, and I'm wearing it all the time.
6: When you research this condition, you can find stories of people going to extreme measures to hide their blushing. I heard about more than one blusher who deliberately got a sunburn before having to make a presentation. One woman would only agree to meet people in bars where the lights were red. Another, who was planning her wedding, visited 60 churches looking for the one with the shortest distance between the curb and the front door, so the fewest number of strangers would see her walking in in her dress. Yet another blusher, who was an engineer, carried around this electrical device he built himself and would shock himself to try to keep from turning red. It didn't work. Many chronic blushers will go out of their way to avoid people they withdraw. Some develop serious depression. A few years ago, you might have read about this in the news, there was a student at the University of Washington in Seattle who felt tortured by his blushing. His dorm room was on the 11th floor, but he always took the stairs so that he didn't have to risk blushing in front of people in the elevator. Finally, one day, he wrote a five-page letter to his family and threw himself off the 11th floor balcony. In the letter, he said, quote, "'It's exhausting.'" to wake up every day and have to find little ways to avoid blushing situations. Elna blushes about three or four times a day. It used to be less, but something happened about a year and a half ago that made the problem a lot worse. She was auditioning for a sitcom, a very big role, and a role that mirrored her life in a lot of ways. She really wanted the part. The producers really wanted her to have the part. And it mattered so much to her that she threw all of her will into not blushing. She repeated to herself over and over, you're not going to blush, you're not going to blush. You can probably guess what happened. The head of the network watched Elna's test and said she looked too nervous on camera. She says after that happened, she sort of threw up her hands.
7: And now it happens all the time.
6: Oh, so that was a moment where you're, you felt like, like mm-hmm. it had won. It
7: won, yeah. But then it also makes me think the only way to fix it is to get this surgery.
6: So the surgery. Elna's been weighing the pros and cons of it for a while, and I wanted to see if I could help her land on one side or the other. The operation itself has another name I love. It's called an endoscopic thoracic sympathectomy, or ETS. That is, they tunnel a little camera, a scope through small incisions in your upper torso or thorax, thoracic, and they cut out your sympathy. I'm kidding. They burn out part of what's called your sympathetic nerve on both sides of your body. It's responsible for blushing and also sweating in your face and hands. It was actually pioneered to cure excessively sweaty palms, and then they figured out it works for blushing too. So what have you thought, like, what is the conversation in your head about the surgery?
7: Uh, I want to get it. I think the only thing is um, I don't want a droopy eye.
6: That's one of the potential side effects. Your eyelid hangs kind of low. It's also called Horner syndrome, but it's pretty rare.
8: Uh, the doctor told me that there was a 1% probability of me developing the Horner syndrome.
6: I talked with a few people who actually had the surgery to see how it worked out for them, starting with this guy, Enrique Jadrasic.
8: I am a former chronic blusher. And the other thing which I find interesting is that I'm a doctor.
6: He's a psychiatrist in Santiago, Chile. He now treats other blushers in his practice, and he also wrote one of very few books you can find about the condition, part of which is about his own struggles with the problem. He told me about this one time he was teaching at his university, and out of nowhere, doesn't remember why, he turned red in the face. And a student, who was maybe 22 years old, looked up at him and said, Oh, professor! You've gone into the cherry tree again, which I guess sounds better in Spanish.
8: And that was awful. I mean, for me, who I was an authority, you see. Yeah. I was to, I was supposed to be the, the one who knew everything, you see.
6: The cherry tree.
8: That's very uncomfortable.
6: Every time Dr. Jadrasich was out and about, he was constantly looking around for people he knew, worried that someone might come up out of nowhere and say hello, which would make him blush. It was exhausting. And then he was asked to run for president of this big Chilean psychiatric and neurology society. It was the equivalent of Elna's TV audition. But he hesitated because he knew he'd have to travel and make appearances in front of people. It was around that time that he read about the surgery in a Chilean newspaper. And about two months after he had the operation...
8: I went to a pharmacy and the lady who was selling at the pharmacy said, Oh, Dr. Jarvis, how are you? And everybody turned to me, to see me. And she said, and she would speak very loudly. I don't know why, but she would speak very loudly. And she said, Oh, Dr. Yadesi, are you still considered one of the most handsome men at the teaching hospital <laughs> where I knew you? <laughs> and I couldn't believe it, but I didn't blush. Wow! And that uh, uh, told me, of course, that the operation had been successful
6: since then, Dr. Jadrasich has become something of an expert on blushers and blushing. He's seen about 800 blushers in his practice, read up on different theories as to why we blush. Charles Darwin wrote a whole chapter on blushing in his book, The Expression of Emotions in Man and Animals. He starts off, quote, blushing is the most peculiar and most human of all expressions. So no other animal does it. Dr. Jadrasich and other people in his field think maybe people blush to signal to the group, I know I screwed up, don't attack me. So it's a protective measure. Blushers are very respectful of others, Jadrasic says. Very nice people overall.
8: People who blush are very empathic. They put themselves in the pants of uh, people in front of them.
6: In the pants.
8: And you know, in psychiatry, the, the opposite, the complete opposite would be the psychopath. Psychopaths never blush.
6: The empathy thing is certainly true of Elna.
7: I could be watching a TV show and something happens to someone on the show, and I'll look down and I'll I'll be blushing on behalf of this embarrassing thing that happened to a person on the screen.
6: I mean, that seems like a really nice quality.
7: But maybe I care too much. Maybe uh, it would be good to have the edge taken off.
6: Dr. Jadrasich didn't develop Horner syndrome, the droopy eye, but he does have to cope with a really common side effect of the sympathectomy. He doesn't sweat from his head or his hands. The operation cuts off the sweat response in those two places. So your body compensates by sweating in weirder places, like your chest, back, groin, and feet. Dr. Jadrusic says you especially need to bear that in mind if you live in a hot climate. Elna was unfazed.
7: Well, I've never been a sweater. I don't have problems with sweating. Uh, yet. Yet, To me, it seems easier to hide sweating than blushing.
6: I don't know. I feel like we're, we're underestimating the level of sweating that we're talking about. Swamp. The swampy feeling.
7: But see, I don't care about the feeling. I could feel sweaty. And as long as you didn't have to know or see, uh, then I could keep faking it. That's the, the, the like, This ruins my ability to fake it.
6: The surgery can also lower your heart rate, which by most accounts is not noticeable unless you're like an Olympic athlete. But this one guy I talked to who's pretty athletic, likes to run in the morning, says, yeah, he noticed it. And that is by far not the worst thing that happened to him after the surgery. He didn't want his real name used. I'll call him Rich. Like Elna, he has a there was a moment when the blushing one story. He had to give this presentation at school and just couldn't, physically couldn't. So he hightailed it out of the building and dropped the course. Not long after that, his father helped him pay for the operation.
1: And after the surgery, um, I, I felt like like I, like I had a superpower, like I was invincible. I uh, I could speak up again. I, had, I was in a philosophy class. I, I, I argued with the teacher just for the sake of arguing. <laughs> <laughs> I was just great. It was a great, very great while it lasted.
6: Everything was fine for a while, but about five or six months after the surgery, Rich was at home, and there was a kind of family reunion going on at his house.
1: And my, my, my mother hugged me like in front of a lot of people, and that caused me to become embarrassed, and out of nowhere, I felt my face turn red again. The problem just came back.
7: Whole
6: force. Rich isn't sure what happened. He had a different version of the surgery, where they clamped the nerve instead of cutting it. But still, it should have worked. It's possible they didn't clamp the nerve in the right place. There are other cases like this where the surgery failed, which is another thing I told Elna to keep in mind. In any case, Rich was back at square one and literally thought he was going to lose his mind. And then, a psychiatrist prescribed him Prozac.
1: It waters you down, it waters me down enough to where I don't have a blushing problem anymore. Really? Yeah, the Prozac, that has cured me.
6: I heard from other folks that Prozac can be an effective weapon against blushing. Even Dr. Jadrasich, whose life was totally improved by the surgery, says he doesn't really promote the operation to his patients. Rather, he tells them to do a three month trial of a drug like Prozac first and then decide. He says six out of 10 patients stick with the medication.
7: I just don't like the idea of medicating myself. And why not? Because it alters my state of mind. Uh huh. I feel like that's such an American solution. It's like just medicated away. And
6: surgery is not.
7: No, surgery is the best solution ever. <laughs>
6: I decided I need to talk with someone who had studied the procedure at length. And I found the perfect guy, a surgeon in Sweden named Krister Drott. He says he's performed this operation more than 2,500 times. Not only that, he worked on a long-range survey of thousands of people who got sympathectomies for blushing, but also for excessive sweating in the palms and face. They were tracked for almost 15 years and answered questions about how satisfied they were with the surgery and how effective it had been. Overall, about 73% of the blushers were satisfied, which means another 27% were not.
4: Yes, they were uh, either um, dissatisfied or even uh, they regretted having the procedure. And, and why? Uh, partly because of the side effects and partly because of poor effect.
6: Poor effect that it didn't work.
4: Yes, and that, I think, is due to the fact that in the beginning we were not aware that we had no effect on the blotchy type on the neck and chest. Wait, you're saying that this operation has no effect
6: on the kind of blushing that's the blotchy type that happens on your chest
4: and neck? Yes, that's correct. It has only effect on the rapid onset type of blushing in embarrassing situation the blushing that emerges within seconds this is really important because one
6: of the people that we talked to in the story my my friend elna she has that uh, slowly emerging blotchy redness and she's considering getting the surgery in
4: fact i would dissuade her from that i broke the news to elna
7: oh wow it's disappointing but it's good to know the pro con list has shifted. Finding out that it won't even work is kind of like okay.
6: That puts it solidly in the con solidly list.
7: Solidly <laughs> in the con list.
6: Yeah. Uh. The science around why it wouldn't work for Elna is complicated to the extent that it's even understood at all. But the best theory is that it isn't Elna's sympathetic nerve that's causing her blushing, it's her adrenal glands, it's adrenaline. Dr. Drot says that's the most likely culprit for the slow-onset blotchy blushing. And so these folks tend to blush when they're experiencing stress. It takes more to make them blush than the rapid-onset blushers, who can be set off by little things, like bumping into a friend on the street. Whereas with Elna, even that time she blushed in the shower, it was stress. She says she was thinking of all the things she had to do that day and getting worked up.
7: But I think, like, the thing behind the thing is I know. It's me. What do you mean? Like, I'm doing this.
6: So you think there's some amount of agency that maybe you there, could take there over? There must be. hmm
7: And if I could figure out how not to do it, like, there must be something that I could think or do or...
6: There is something Elna can think and do, according to Dr. Drot, the surgeon. or Rather, something she could not do. It's the simplest thing and possibly more effective than the
4: sympathectomy or drugs or anything else. Some people blush terribly, and they don't care. Oh yes, I've seen the former Norwegian uh, uh, prime minister. That's former Norwegian prime minister Gro
6: Harlem Brundtland.
4: Was blushing like a street lamp, but she didn't care. She was prime minister anyway.
6: So you think that if Elna didn't care as much that she blushed, she would blush less? Yes. You do think that? Oh, yes. Of course, this is an easy thing to say. When I gave Elna the good doctor's advice, she said, did you ask him how Elna can not care? So what do you think you'll do now?
7: Um, I don't know. I think what I've learned from doing this Like, I'm not blushing right now. That's kind of amazing. I noticed that, actually. That is kind
6: of amazing.
7: Because I told people. The fact that now everyone in the meeting knows that I blush, whereas I've been keeping that a secret for three and a half years and wearing turtlenecks and scarves and hiding it. If it happens, I think that they'll not judge me. And I feel like that is going to help, too.
6: I I mean, I don't think any of us would have ever judged you about it in the first place. But now it'll just be like, oh, that's that thing.
7: That thing she does.
6: In fact, at the most recent story meeting, Elna showed up without wearing a scarf. And she didn't
0: blush. Sean Cole is one of the producers of our program. The program was produced today by Jonathan Menhivar and me with Zoe Chase, Sean Cole, Stephanie Fu, Hannah Joffe walt Miki Meek, Brian Breed, Robin and Alyssa Schiff, Julie Snyder, and Nancy Updike. Editing help from Joel Lovell. Production help from Simon Adler. Seth Glins, our operations director. Emily Condon's our production manager. Elise Bergerson's our office manager. Elna Baker, scout stories for our show. Research help today from Michelle Harris and Christopher Swatala. Music help from Damian Gray from Rob Geddes. Special thanks today to Eric Menel, Mark Sykes, Christian Smithfeld, Martin Johnson, Stephen Bodson, Paul Patsko, Randall Mags, Jeff Klein, Stan Fischler, and Jeremy Price, our website. We can see that amazing photo from Life magazine of Terry Sawchuk looking like Frankenstein. It's really something. ThisAmericanLife.org. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. Thanks, as always, to our program's co-founder, Mr. Tori Malatia, who stopped going to the Gap Because the customers just act so weird in the dressing room.
8: They put themselves in the pants of uh, people in front of them.
0: I'm Ira Glass, back next week with more stories of this American life.